So good morning everybody. I want to um, dedicate the, the Chabura today to the memory of uh, Ravadin Steinsaltz, Oliver Shalom, Zeche Tzadik Livrocha. He was a man of um, peripatetic knowledge and he was a polyglot and dedicated his life to bringing the deepest recesses of Torah Shabal Peh to the secular audience. The tragedy is that he wasn't accepted by Gans Claudius Royal. There was criticism that the Tsuras Hadaf, the shape and the the appearance of the Daf that he was creating wasn't the classical Tfus, the classical shape and uh, appearance of uh, of the regular Daf. But he went on his own way. I, that's not the first time it happened. You remember the Radzina Rebbe had written a parish on Seder Taharot. And he did it with his writing in the middle and then on either side commentaries. And uh, he went to the Natsiv for a Haskaman. The Natsiv was very upset that people would mistake it for the real Gemara. Then he went behind the Natsiv's back and he went to the Natsiv's son, Reb Chaim Berlin in Russia, and got a Haskama from him. And the Natsiv was very upset that he'd gone behind his back. So in the end, there's a pshara that on every duff of Seder Taurus, it says, this is not the Gemara. On every page he had to print it. So it's not the first time that we have conservative forces that, um, that resist any kind of innovation. But what's amazing about uh, Ravadin was his knowledge of Greek and knowledge of uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, um, and that it's on it's displayed on every page. Any time there's a question, there's a Greek loan word, he'll make use of it. And then his knowledge of Hasidut, specifically Chabad Hasidut. He lived next door to my twin sister, and once and and on. On Motzei Shabbat, they would have a minion in the courtyard, so I would see him when I visited my sister. Um, and once I went up to him um, and asked him, I was steiging in the whole Indian of the Tzimtzum and the difference between the Alter Rebbe and the Vilna Gaon and Reb Nachman. And um, I spent five minutes explaining to him my, my difficulty. I knew he had read everything and he knew everything. <laughs> And I, I said, you know, it appeared to me that the whole machloket wasn't about whether Hasidim were drinking too much or uh, eating too late, but the problem was the Indian of the Tzimtzum. And Rav Steinsaltz uh, looked at me with his deep blue eyes, <laughs> and he, he just dismissed me and says, Lokolkach. <laughs> it wasn't so, that wasn't the big issue. All right, I got it wrong. That's good. So in his memory, I want to talk about the, the double edge and the dual nature of the Mon. In this week's Parshas Akev, Deuteronomy 8, 16, Moses is warning us that Varam Levavacha, you're going to get very haughty. The Shachachta et Adonai Elohecha, you're going to forget the Lord. Hamoli Chabamidbar, you're going to forget that he was the one that took you through uh, the wilderness, Hagadol, the Hanorah, Nachash, Saraf, Akrav, you know, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, Vitzimaon and thirst, Asheimbo Moim, Hamutzi Lacha, Mayim Mitsuach Halomish, who was able miraculously to 
produce water from a flint rock. And now the critical term. Remember, we're in Deuteronomy, thinking back into Baalosachor and in Shmos, when we were complaining that we had nothing to eat. He gave you, he was the one who fed you the man, Bamidbar, Asher lo your fathers, forefathers never knew of this thing. And now what bothered me and stopped me in my tracks when I was being Ma'avisedra are the next two words. Laman anosachor. I don't know how to translate that. It doesn't make sense. I'm giving you a gift. Laman anosachor. The word inui we know from the Gemara in Yuma, right? Inui. And, and the Torah's command for Yom Kippur, the inisem is and there should be inui. Inui is the concept of suffering, which on Yom Kippur has five components not eating, not drinking, not. Wearing leather shoes, no tashmish, meter, inui. So I'm giving you the mon inui to afflict you? I looked up um, Robert Alter's new translation of the Bible and Robert Richard Friedman, the two uh, California scholars who spent 30 years understanding the literary nature of the Bible. Beautiful, beautiful translation. And they translated inui as in order to degrade you. I was shocked when I saw that translation. In order to degrade you. In order to test you, like Abraham. Hashem Niso es Abraham. He tested Abraham with a trial. So obviously, there are two separate issues, right? There's one inui, or one is inui, and one is testing. One is suffering, degradation, and one is testing you. For your own good, of course. So that you won't say, because you're going to say, it's all me, it's all my doing. I was the one. So I'm testing you in the Midbar with, with the Mon. Okay, so let's go into what does that mean. I thought it was a gift. The water is a gift. He didn't give you the water to test you. He gave you the water because you were thirsty. But, but you're hungry. And now he gives you the mon to feed you. He says that. It's to feed you. But why? The motivation will be in order to degrade you, make you suffer. Number one. Number two, in order to test you. Now, if you look at Psalm 78, which is an ancient psalm that goes, recounts the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the whole history of, of, of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and going to the Midbar. And psalm 78 is a very critical psalm historically because the scholars compare that epic psalm uh, to the Bible and to, to compare because it was considered very ancient, one of those epic poems that Kasuta talks about. And so in Psalm 78 says... So he commanded the skies above, he opened the doors of the heaven and rained manna upon them for food, giving them heavenly grain. Each man ate a hero's meal. He sent them provisions in plenty. So the psalmist looks back at this episode as one of divine bounty. There is no dark side to the manna in Psalm 78. God then, let's go back to Shmo 16, 
And God says to Moses, because the Israelite community grumbled. So let's go back to the first time when they complained. If only we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when, he, when we sat by the flesh pots of Egypt and we ate our fill of bread in Egypt. Remember in Baalotzcho it says, Zoharnu es vesakishuim. Right? We remember the cucumbers and the fish and the gourds and the garlic, right? Here in Shmos, we remembered the bread because you brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. And Lord says to Moses, I will rain down bread from you from the sky. So the people shall go out and gather their day. And to see, now here there's also a litmus test, to see if they will follow my instructions or not. Now, the test of the manna here in Shmos is different. It's a test to see whether they will follow, in Hebrew, Torosai. Torosai which Art Scroll and the others translate as instructions. Purpose of God's provision of the man is to test the people of Israel. And what is the test? So Chazal back there, Tanchuma, Rashi, explain, the Holy One, blessed be said to Israel, I give you the Torah to occupy yourselves every day. In which case, if you do that, I'll satisfy you with your daily bread from heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. As it says, And the people shall go out and gather each day that day's portion, that I may test them to see whether they will follow my Torosai. So Shmos Rabbah, quoted by Rashi, and is telling us that the function of the mon, the manna, originally in Shmos, is so that it will free them up. They don't have to grind, they don't have to bake, they don't have to mill, they don't have to sow, winnow, reap, nothing. Nothing. It's just there for them, just like Adam before the sin, right? He just plucked the fruit and he was given. He didn't have to work by the sweat of his brow. Here too, Shmos Rubber 25 tells us that the function of the mon so that they will follow my Torosai, not my instructions, but they will study my Torah. They will have time to study my Torah. And the Chizkuni elaborates, 13th century, I will test them to see whether they'll preoccupy themselves with the study of Torah, since I provide them with ready food. So the Midrashic homiletical explanation interprets the word Torosai, because literally that does mean instruction, my Torah, my teaching, not as intimated by our English translators in relation to a specific instruction of gathering the manna, rather to the Torah as a whole and to the commandments. The provision of the manna will create free time. Now, Rashi, in contrast, interprets the Torosai as referring not to Torah as a whole, but to the specific instructions of the manna. He takes the word Torosai as instruction manual, that I may test them whether they'll keep the commandments which are associated with the mon. So he resolves the Midrash with the Pshat by saying, yes, you're right, Torosai to be taken literally is instructions, and Torah is Torah, mitzvahs. Oh, it means the mitzvahs connected with the mon. What, what are the mitzvahs? Oh, don't leave anything over for the following day. Don't go out on Shabbos to collect it. 
So it, it's the mitzvahs regarding the collection. Okay. Comes along the Ramban, and he rejects Rashi's interpretation, claiming it is incorrect without telling us why. Well, what is problematic about Rashi's interpretation? It's very nice. It, it, it correlates with both. The difficulty with the Ramban has with Rashi's interpretation is in the order of the verses. The statement, my God, that mm -hmm. I may test mm -hmm. you to see whether they follow my Torosai or not, appears before the specification of the rules regarding the collection of the manna. So how could refer to the mitzvahs regarding the manna if they haven't described it yet? It would seem from the above verse that not the rules governing the manna, but the manna itself was the test for the Ramban. After rejecting Rashi, the Ramban goes on to give his own dazzling interpretation. In the tent of the trial is he who said in our posuk in Akev, yesterday's posuk, who fed you in the wilderness with the manna which your fathers knew not, that he might afflict you and that he might try you to see that it will be good at the end. So Ramban now tells us that the mon itself was a trial. Since they had no food in the wilderness, there was no recourse to any sustenance except the manna, which they didn't know before and they've never known from their fathers. Each day's quantity came down on its day and they were eagerly desirous to eat it. Quote. Yet with all this, they hearkened to walk after God, to a place of no food. So, as the Jeremiah verse tells us in 2.2, and I accounted you favor for the devotion of chesed neuraich, lechtal acharai bamidbar, you came to me like a bride following a bridegroom into the wilderness, be'eretz lozarua, in a land, a wilderness that wasn't sown, there was no food. You knew you might go hungry. And so you shall remember this day that he might afflict you, leman anosacha, degrade you, lenasoscha, to try you to know what was in your heart. So the mon now becomes, for the Ramban, a litmus test of your cardiac devotion to the Lord. It is the test itself, not the mitzvahs, not the Torosai, but the mon itself. Ramban deftly and midrashically uses our verse in Akev to explicate the verse in Shmos to let us know that the mon itself was some kind of litmus test, like the sota drinks the May sota to see if she is faithful to her husband. We are eating the mon, doesn't blow up our belly, but it is a litmus test, because if we go out every day, then we then know it's going to only last a day. We're not allowed to hoard. There was no hoarding allowed, even on Friday. Living on the mon, according to the Ramban, was an existence of the utter bare necessities, the bare-bone existence in a land of scorpions and serpents and ti tigers and lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Will they respectively follow God despite the difficulties? So my question for you, my holy brothers and sisters, is the mon the answer to suffering? Meaning they were hungry and they asked Moshe 
to fill their bellies because they were in pain, they were suffering without food? Or is the mon itself the suffering? Does mona provide security or scarcity? So let's go to a very enigmatic Rashi. And now we jump to Barlosachar numbers 11. When they're asking for the, well, we don't know. The Hasafsuf, remember I called it the riffraff, the rabble. Asher Bekirva, Hitavu Tava. They developed a craving for a craving. We talked about that. Who's going to feed us meat? Meat? We, you, you have a delicious meal every day of manna and water. What do you need more? Oh, now listen to their excuse. We remember the fish. It was free. The cucumbers. Et ha'avatichim, the melons. Et ha'chatzir, the leeks. Et ha'betzalim, the onion. Et ha'shumim, and the garlic. Comes along Rashi and quotes the Sifri, Omar Rabbi Shimon, His question is that the miraculous nature of the mon is that it could change into anything you want. The problem is it looked like mon, the coriander seed. The miraculous nature of the mon was it would tasted whatever you wanted to do. Ah, not so fast. It tasted whatever you wanted it to. Chutz me'elu. The fact that they said we remember the fish and the kishuim and the avatichim and the chatzir betzalim, that means we're not getting it. So the Sifri says, you're right. You got everything you wanted. You could go to shallots and have anything on the menu except fish, kishuim, avatia, chatzalim, da-da. Why? Why were they excluded from the menu? <laughs> the Sifri is telling us something very interesting about the medicine of the times. Women who are pregnant or were weaning, feeding their babies, they had a problem with these issues. They were, it were, they were warned, you shouldn't really have medical, medical times. You shouldn't have fish, shouldn't have avatir, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. Omrim Isha, they say to a woman, meaning the Sifri is telling us, everybody knows, everybody tells, every midwife tells the woman, Al tochri don't eat garlic or onion, because of the baby. So the Sifri is telling us that the, these were the exceptions. And because they were the exceptions, that's exactly what they were harking for. The very five items on the shallots menu that they had for 40, 40 years, those five they couldn't have, and they're the ones they want. We remember the chinam, the dagim. It was given to us free of charge back there in Mizraim. And then he compares, he says, Mashallah Melech. The Sifri brings this, this, this very dark mashal of a king who puts a tutor in charge of a son to give him orders and tells him, look, you can take him out every day for lunch, but don't take him to McDonald's. I don't want him eating junk food. And so the son, the next day, goes out with the tutor for lunch and they're passing McDonald's and then they go to the, cucumber, the, the sandwich place. What's the place called? <laughs> and... Uh, 
and the, the son is fuming against his father and says, now listen to the mashal. It's not because he loves me that he's saying I shouldn't eat junk food. It's just because he wants to deny them to me. That's a very dark midrash that the Sifri brings. That the son says the motive of the father isn't to protect me by saying, I don't want you to eat these five and menu because, you know, pregnant women are going to get upset. They're going to get, they're going to get, they're going to get sick from them. It's because you just, you just, you're a sadist. You just want to deny me this. Very dark. The Gomorrah in Yuma says that the, that the notion, the word Inui, the Inisem Esnaf Shosechem, they're struggling with that word. They're going to come up with the halacha, what you can't do on, on Yom Kippur, it's Torah Shabal Peh. So they're struggling with the word, you shall afflict your souls, Leviticus 16.29 for Yom Kippur. And it says you shall afflict your souls, therefore affliction is something that destroys the soul, according to Rabbi Yishmael. And that is what? Well, what destroys your soul? Eating and drinking. And so the affliction is stated according to Rabbi Ishmael. How do I know that? I learned that from our Posuk. And he afflicted you and caused you to hunger. From that, Rabbi Ishmael learns that on Yom Kippur we don't eat. And so the Gemara says, let's derive it from a different verse where Lavan says to Jacob, don't afflict my daughters. Well, the Gemara answers, uh, typically Gemara would, affliction of the public needs to be compared, if it's a Gezer Shava or a Hekish, to be with affliction of the public. There it was private, there it was private. Okay. And then it goes on, well, maybe it derives from, and he saw our affliction, which refers to abstinence from conjugal relations, and they go through a whole list. That's the Gemara in Yuma. And then the Gemara says, let's talk about what we remember. The Zoharno, the Kishuin, the Dogger, the Kishuin, the melons and the leeks, they cried because they couldn't taste the taste of these five foods. The sensation of Mon was so strong that it seemed to them like they were eating the very food that was they were imagining. But these five foods, they only tasted the flavor, but not the texture, according to the Gemara. And its flavor was like the flavors, the wafers made of honey, as it says in Shmo 16.31. It's coriander. So they say that the problem was that it was the look of the mon that bothered them, not the taste. The taste tasted like whatever they wanted. But it was constantly like coriander, which was white. And they feared that if they sinned, the manna would not continue to fall. And so the problem they had was not the, the tactile, the taste, but the vision. And the vision was always the same. And so we're told that a person who has taste, but no vision, it's like he had no taste. And the Gemara ends that a blind person who eats, he doesn't have the taste because he can't see it. In fact, in neurology, 90% of taste is smell, and maybe 5 more percent is the look and the appearance of the food. So there is some neurological truth to that. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to share then with you 
building up on the Ramban, a Hasidic notion of this Inui. Because the Hasidim don't look at anything negatively. Everything is positive. Our relationship with the divine has to be positive. So what is the reason for giving us Machol Hamon and telling us, I am afflicting you, I'm degrading you, and I am testing you? This is from the Orach Lechaim, not the Orachaim, but the Orach Lechaim. He's teaching us something profound about our relationship with the natural world as the chosen people. Teva derecha olam she'ochrim lechem v'shar machlin ha'yeduin u'mizeh heim chaim. The derech of teva, the natural world, is precisely that you eat, digest, and absorb nutrients. V'gam k'sheroa ha'dova she'ochel v'roa shu k'desh sevia. And also the taste, the texture, the smell and the presentation of the food is in order to satiate himself. That's the function of all those things that we do culturally around food. Oz who survey and then he gets satisfaction. If you get something that just looks white and coriander seed and it has no appearance, then what happens? If it's great, and it's a lot, and it fills your stomach, it's really interesting psychological insight that satiation isn't just about stuffing your face. I know that because I, I eat lunch on the run. <laughs> and I just really, between patients, I'm stuffing my face, and there's no satisfaction. But when I go to Charlotte's and I sit down with a Pinot Noir, and they bring out this beautiful delicacy, and it ends with a beautiful, naughty dessert, right? There's this sense of satisfaction, psychological, that comes along with stuffing your face and filling your stomach. The Chaim Bamashilo Yodin Mahu. And the fact that they didn't know what it was. It just comes down from heaven. It's this white coriander seed. The fathers never told us about it. You know, we're very dependent on our parents for our mama food, so soul food. I still have the taste of my grandmother's chicken curry to this day. I can smell it. It, it helps with the satisfaction as you digest it. They never saw the food that they were tasting, it just looked homogeneous. So they were like the Gomorrah in Yuma that says they were blind, and a blind person can't get satisfaction from the food. Because they didn't even know if they would get satisfaction, and it would get them to the next day. So now we have the interpretation of Inui. The new interpretation, according to the Oral Achaim, is that Inui degrading this suffering of the Mon as a test is a property of the Mon itself. Because it tastes whatever you want it to taste, but it lacks that property of satiation 
of visual, of tactile, of auditory, well, not auditory, of, of smelling, olfactory, preparatory. He makes this statement, even though they ate the manna, they were still hungry. It reminds me of addiction. Even though I have that joint or that cigarette or that opiate or that cocaine, I get the hit and then I remain hunger for it. It's never enough. It's never enough. They just wanted to taste him. Then comes back to, I, we remember the taste. It's not about the food. They're like blinds and they didn't, were never satiated by the mon. Which answers my question, my original question. And the question I had, was the mon a diagnostic litmus test? Was it the answer to the suffering of hunger? Or is Mon the suffering itself? He seems to answer the question that the Mon itself was not only to test you to see if you believed in me, but the Inui itself was its own property of causing such suffering. Is there such a thing that you can be satiated digestively and yet feel the absence of any kind of satiation mentally? And why is he doing it? Because the Inui Lohem was a Ra'avin. It was this constant desire that you had for food, even though you were eating it and filling your bellies, it was never enough. And why are we doing it? And here he says it. Remember he started off by saying the kavana is It's a very profound idea. I'm using the mon to teach you about nature the natural world, the physical world, the world of physiology. And I'm teaching you by dissociating the satisfaction of filling your stomach with the filling of your stomach. So you won't go starving. You'll have food, but you will never have satisfaction for it. I have to tell you that there are patients of mine who are Holocaust survivors who after the Holocaust never again enjoyed food or sex or relations or friendship or anything. They lived life. They were Muslim And even after they had survived, they had lost that sense of satiation, that sense of that wonder that comes from a full stomach after having a great meal or having made love or having seen a beautiful sunset or listening to a Bach C-sharp minor um, quartet, right? It's just, they just don't have that sipuka nefesh in life. I think that what he's teaching us is precisely that. Why not have that? You shall not be sublunar categories of platonic cause and effect. 
of the laws of physics and physiology. I want you not to be subject to that. Elo'ein mazal Yisrael. The Gemara in Shabbos 157 tells us there is no muzzle that controls Am Yisrael. We are above the mazalot, the sublunar constellations and the astrological zodiac that controls other people's lives. Ki mazalot vativim. Ela, and here's the punchline, Heim tachas kanfei hashchina. That teaching by going through the desert and suffering and testing and causing us this inui through the agency of the man was to teach us that we are tachas kanfei hashchina, hashura al Yisrael. And the, that he brings the zoya and the tikkune zoya that go, we could go into that we are under the Kanfei HaShchinah, we are part of the Shekhinah, the consort of the Divine. Kamoshe Omru Bikesh Moshe Shelo Tishra Shekhinah Elo Al Yisrael V'Nosan Lo. Moses asked the God that the Shekhinah should only rest on Am Yisrael, and he was graft, granted this, as it says in Kisiso V'Niflinu Aniv Amcho. It's the Pele shall only, this wondrous nature should only be between me and Am Yisrael. So the notion of chosenness here is given a different spin. Being chosen here is being put through this trial. And the trial is the mon. The mon is the litmus test of suffering, and the mon is the suffering itself. And therefore, the two expressions, leman inuscha, to, to degrade you, leman nasoscha, the two are not redundant. They are two sides of the coin of testing us in order that we come to this state in our lives where we don't feel controlled by destiny, controlled by physiology, controlled by the winds of history, by the Hegelian forces of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, that somehow we have this destiny, as uh, Rabbi Wine likes to call it, uh, where we develop this extrasensory, supernatural, metaphysical perception of our lives. Thank you. This should be Lezechel Tzadik Livrocha from Vadin Steinsalt, who always believed that Am Yisrael had uh, this special destiny. Bye bye, everyone.